today uh, we're continuing on through our credo series as we kind of walk through the Apostles' Creed, uh, more or less line by line or at least topic by topic. And what we're doing is we're letting the Apostles' Creed point us uh, to the scriptures, right? We look at the, the, the topics brought up in the creed and we look at the scriptures and we say, what does the scripture say about this? Um, and, and what does the word of God say about this? And today in particular, we're going to be talking about the forgiveness of sins, that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. The creed and the belief in the forgiveness of sins as well as everything else in the creed, this is for us like a boundary marker. It tells us in the church who we are, what it looks like to be the church, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And it tells people outside of the church, hey, this is who we are. Um, this is what we believe. This is how we interact with each other. This is part of, of something that helps us to identify ourselves and helps the world around us to identify who we are. Um, and so I'm really excited to be getting into the discussion of the forgiveness of sins because it is such an important part of who we are and what we believe. Um, but before we do that, and for a little bit of context, uh, I, I was hoping we could read the creed together. Uh, a lot of traditions, a lot of believers, a lot of churches will read the creed like every single week. Uh, last Wednesday, if you're here for the Credo Deep Dive, uh, Taryn Hesman was saying she grew up Lutheran, and like they did the creed every single week, and it just got baked into the core of who she is, that these are really the core, like fundamental, some of the most important things that we believe. And she was saying what a valuable thing that was, even though when she was a kid, she was like, we're reading the creed again? Um, but how important it was to have that baked in. So we don't do that every week, uh, but we're doing this series, so maybe uh, we can read through the creed together today. So if you would, read along with me as we, as we go through the creed today. So I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. That is what we believe. Um, and if any of those words, like the word Catholic, were weird for you, go back and listen to the message on that we've covered through them all pretty consistently. Um, and, uh, and those deep dives, too, if you want to, like they're all on the podcast, you can dive in a little bit deeper if you want to dig into even what we weren't able to cover on Sunday. But um, I would say for as long as, as people have been coming together to, to gather into what we call communities, and as long as those communities have been coming together to create what we call society, there's been something that's been apparent to just about everybody, which is that society is broken. Society is falling short and always has. Of, of what we kind of feel and sense inside ourselves that it ought to be. It, it, it isn't perfect, it isn't ideal, it isn't utopia. There, there is a dissonance between what is and what ought to be when it comes to the structures of society and the way that we interact with each other and the way that we treat each other. We all have a general sense, most of us, that this just isn't quite right. And so for thousands of years, kings and queens and philosophers and theologians and politicians, they've been talking about and they've been thinking about, well, how do we get there? How do we get from this broken society to the, to the society that we kind of feel ought to be? How do we interact with each other better? How do we structure everything in a better way? How do we get to utopia? How do we get to paradise? How do we get to that ideal society? And for thousands of years... People have been coming up with ideas and trying them out, and every single one of them has fallen short of what ought to be. Every single one of them has fallen short of utopia or paradise or that perfect society. It's been a swing and a miss after swing and a miss after swing and a miss. 
And in uh, BC 400, Plato writes The Republic, and in it, he proposes his vision for an ideal society. And if you actually, if you've ever read uh, Plato's The Republic, you'll realize surprisingly that his vision for a utopian society is far more dystopian than it is utopian. It's actually pretty messed up. His, his vision, his dream for the perfect society is maybe what we could do is we could cre- create three different classes of society. And we'll have infants conceived in such a way that nobody knows who their father is. And then we'll have the infants removed from their mother at birth and raised by the state so that they can most fully realize the potential and the goal and the vision of the class that we place them in. I probably don't need to convince you that Plato's vision of the republic of a perfect society of the utopia uh, is a really messed up one. It's literally the premise of every dystopian sci-fi movie or sci-fi book that you've ever watched or read. Um, It's pretty twisted. And so Plato has a big fat swing and a miss, skip forward over lots of philosophers and politicians and theologians and all that to uh, relatively recent history. There was a man named Karl Marx who observed that in society, one of the problems seems to be that there are just a few people at the top of society who have the majority of the wealth and the power, and they have a tendency to abuse that wealth and power. And so he posited that maybe what we should do to create that utopian society to get closer to it is we could rise up and we could take the wealth and we could take the power from the people at the top and we could redistribute it among everybody else until we have equality, until we have equity. And when everybody has more or less the same situation, we won't have jealousy, we'll treat each other better, we'll just live in this beautiful, like, community. And that sounds wonderful until you read the last hundred years or so of the pages of history and realize that that idea and the attempts to realize it have actually been some of the bloodiest, most destructive, most deadly ideas and attempts that we've ever tried as, as humanity. It's been pretty nasty. So Marx has a bit of a swing and a miss there. there there's a man named uh, Sigmund Freud, and Freud is often called the father of psychology. And, and his, his theory was this, that human beings at the core of who we are is our desires, most especially our sexual desires. And the problem with society is that society is chiefly organized around repressing those desires. And when we repress our desires, he says that weird, unhealthy things kind of pop out from the corners of who we are. And so his vision for a better society, his vision to get closer to what ought to be, is if we could restructure society in such a way so as not to repress, but rather to encourage and incentivize and even realize all of our desires, most especially our sexual ones. The problem with Freud's ideas there is that oftentimes one person's desire is met at at the cost of great harm to another person. In fact, one person's sexual desires, which he calls the most important, Oftentimes, when those are realized, they come as the dehumanizing nightmare of another human being. So Ford's got a big fat swing and a miss. And you would say, well, what, what does that matter? What do those guys have any influence on today? And I would say they've actually, those men as well as many other thinkers like them, have had a profound impact on the air that we breathe today, that their ideas are alive and well and thriving, and they are influencing the way that we are trying to structure society and what we're trying to do to fix things to get things better. And, and you would say, and I would agree, that there are better ways to structure society. A lot of people would say that, and I agree. There are some really bad ways, and there are some less bad but still bad ways, and there are some okay but still far from perfect ways. In America, we have what, generally speaking, we could summarize as a capitalist democratic republic. We have a bit of a cocktail of ideas there. And a lot of people, not all of them, not all of us, but a lot of us would say that's, relatively speaking, compared to other ways, a pretty decent way of structuring society. But let me ask you this, even if you're the person who feels really great about that cocktail, is this utopia? Is this ideal? Do you feel great about the way we've structured things? Are we interacting with each other and treating each other in the way that we ought to? 
My guess is you would say, no, last week David was, was joking about it even a little bit. He was saying, like, who's excited for election year, right? He's poking at that Republic one a little bit. It might be better than a lot of other structures, a lot of other governments. But at the end of the day, are you really excited for the candidates that we're going to get to look at in the next year? Are you really excited about that process? Do you feel like that's the way it ought to be? Maybe we don't have a better idea, but we all have a sense that this is broken. And I think that at the core of, of why every single attempt is a swing and a miss um, is something that's articulated really well by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He says this. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. I think that what he's saying really harmonizes with what we see on the pages of the scripture, what we see in the Bible. That the problem with society, chiefly, is that you and I are broken. That in us are these beautiful and holy desires and at the same time are these twisted and broken, disordered desires. And as far as I can tell, every attempt, every idea, every philosophy that people have come up with to try to get to that utopia, to try to get to that paradise, to try to make society better, they've boiled down to one or both of two different strategies. One strategy is get rid of all the bad people, and then just us good people will have a big old party when the bad people are gone. The problem with that is that if you get rid of all the bad people in society, you will be left with no society because you'll be left with no people because every single one of us is a little bit broken. The other main strategy I, I see there is like, maybe we can just fiddle with the dials of society, right? We can, we can mess with, with the incentives and the disincentives and, and the scaffolding, the structure and the government and the economy. If we can just fiddle with these dials and get them dialed in just right, we won't have any more societal pressure encouraging people to hurt each other and to do bad things and to sin. Because it's really just societal pressure that causes us to do that. But the problem with that is that although society can encourage or discourage sin, it can encourage or discourage us from hurting each other and doing wrong things. At the end of the day, we don't need societal pressure to do wrong things. If you escape to the woods with nobody but yourself, you will find sin has followed you there. Because like Solzhenitsyn said, the line that divides good and evil is in your heart because there is brokenness in you. We have these holy desires as well as these disordered desires. And what is our hope? How can we structure society in a right way when each of us are not structured rightly in our own hearts? Do the nihilists have it right that no, you just can't do it? It's just always going to be not what it ought to be? That there is no ought to to begin with? I don't think so. I think there is a solution, but I think the only person who's ever been able to come up with a solution that really deals with the brokenness inside you and me and the people we love, as well as the people we hate, the only person who's ever come up with a solution to that is God. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. That's worth clapping for. And in Ephesians chapter one, uh, verses seven through 10, Paul spells this out, I think, pretty well. He says, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him 
things in heaven and things on earth. So what is God's plan? God's plan to fix society and, and everything is to unite all things to him, all things in heaven, all things in earth. His plan is to unite them to him. This is how he is gonna make not just utopia, not just paradise, but the kingdom of heaven. It's a beautiful plan. And how does he get there? How does he achieve this? Well, it starts with the forgiveness of sins. It starts with God forgiving your sins and my sins. He accomplishes this by the blood of his son. Jesus was born. He lived a flawless and perfect life so that he could die for us flawed and imperfect people so that his blood could wash us of our sins. And this is what we mean, part of it at least, when we say that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that this is God's plan to change the world. We believe that it's God's plan for hope for you and for me for today. It's our hope to move forward for tomorrow. It is our hope literally for eternity. And it is God's plan to restore all things. Now, it's interesting. Um, I think in, in, in our culture, in America, uh, for quite a long time, the majority of my life, uh, pretty universally, there was a belief that forgiveness was a good thing. That most people, if not everybody, would say, well, forgiveness is, is always a good thing. Some people would say, well, sometimes I don't know how to forgive. I can't forgive. Maybe some people would say, I don't want to forgive. But just about everybody, maybe 10 years, 15 years ago, uh, would have said, but I know that I should, even if I don't want to and even if I don't. But over the last decade or so, uh, something has been kind of brewing in our culture, and it boiled over about three years ago in 2020, when all of a sudden we realized there's a contingent of people in our culture who are actually saying, nope, forgiveness is not good. People started saying, how dare you forgive that bad person of that bad thing that they did? I don't think that's right. Forgiveness is something that oppressors use to continue to oppress people and to feel good about what they're doing. And my guess is you've seen it on your social media feeds. My guess is you've, well, you've definitely seen it on the news if you watch any news. Uh, you've probably maybe even experienced some of it in your family, maybe even some people that you know from church and in community. Uh, you probably heard it from strangers, this idea that, you know what? No, you, you, just, it's, you shouldn't forgive that person. Some things ought not to be forgiven. Some people ought not to be forgiven. And in, uh, in 2019, a book was published uh, that, that was on Time Magazine's list of must-read books of 2019. In 2020, it became an Amazon bestseller. Uh, it also hit New York Times' number one bestseller spot and stayed on the list of uh, New York Times bestsellers for 45 weeks. Uh, this book has had a really significant impact on the thoughts of the people around us. Even if you haven't read this book, my guess is some of the ideas in the book have kind of seeped into your thinking and the way you view things, whether you realize or not, maybe you've agreed with them, maybe you've disagreed with them. And there are probably people in your life uh, who have been really impacted by this book and have really agreed with a lot of stuff written in it. Uh, the book is called uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, and it is that author's vision of how do we get closer to that utopian society? How do we deal specifically with the issue of racism in our society and the racism in you and in me? Um, and there's a quote from early on in the book. I read the book cover to cover, and I think this, book does a, this quote does a pretty good job uh, kind of summarizing one of his main pillars of what he, his argument of what he's trying to say. And one thing I'll say for Kendi is that he is very clear in what he's saying, um, and, and he's very precise in his definitions of what he's saying in this book. So um, he says this, um, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. And I don't think it's an unfair characterization of, what, of his argument in this book to say this. I think what Kendi is arguing in this book is that for you to deal with the racism that you're guilty of, 
The only thing that you can do is engage in political activism, particularly political activism that is going to achieve wins towards the end of initiating discrimination that will discriminate against the class of people that have benefited from the discrimination of the past. And he recognizes that what that means is that tomorrow we'll have to turn the tables again and discriminate against the class of people that benefit from the discrimination that we institute today. And we're going to continue to flip-flop this discrimination. And this is a battle that we will engage in forever and ever and ever. And in his mind, this is the only way to deal with it. And I, I just want to say something really clearly. As much as he engages in theology in this book, and as much as I understand that, yes, yeah, some people feel, sometimes you feel like, no, forgiveness is not right. Forgiveness isn't going to do it. We need to respond in kind. The core of what Candy is writing in this book is absolutely at odds with the words of Jesus. Because Jesus did, in fact, say to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute. And he did, in fact, say that when someone strikes you on the cheek, to turn the other cheek. And he was not crossing his fingers when he said that. He meant it. And I understand that forgiveness is scandalous and at times infuriating. But nonetheless, we believe, and the followers of Jesus for thousands of years have believed in the forgiveness of sins. And I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And one of the many, many, many reasons that I believe in the forgiveness of sins is because it's, it's beautiful. Right? My goal today is not to like argue for the forgiveness of sins or argue against those who disagree with it. My goal is simply to say this. There are people who don't believe in the forgiveness of sins, but we do. And I, and I see the forgiveness of sins to be a beautiful thing for many reasons, but one of which is because I know what it's like to come to the edge of my heart's capacity to forgive. I know what it's like to be wronged in such a way that my heart does not have the strength to forgive someone. I know what it's like to have someone wrong someone I love very much and to realize that as much as I might want to or as much as I don't want to, I cannot forgive them. And to forgive them would be to go beyond my capacity. I could no more forgive this person of that sin that is unforgivable than I could walk up to a mountain and shove it 10 feet forward. And yet, I've lived long enough to hear stories and to witness with my own eyes moments in time when one human being forgives another human being of an unforgivable sin. And every time I've witnessed that, it's been absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. It might have been offensive and infuriating, but it has been beautiful every single time. And I think that those moments when people forgive other people of things that are not forgivable... They're literally supernatural. They literally are so beautiful that they, that they actually supersede our natural capacities. I think that those moments are more beautiful than the moments when you go to a concert and you listen to one of the world's best musicians play around the strings of their guitar and evoke in you emotions that you haven't felt since you were a kid. I think that those moments when you see one person forgive another of an unforgivable sin are more beautiful than what happens when you're watching the Olympics and you see someone break a world record and you literally watch a human being accomplish something at such a level that no other human being has ever accomplished it. Because those moments are just apex natural. They're just apex human capacity. But these moments, when we forgive the unforgivable, these moments surpass the natural. They are literally supernatural. The beauty of those, I imagine, is only paralleled by like if I watched a human being fly or walk through walls or literally move a mountain. 
I, th- I think this is beautiful. I think it's also possible. And the reason I think it's possible is not just because I've seen it happen, but also because I believe that when we hit this moment where we're at the edge of our heart's capacity to forgive, it is the forgiveness of Jesus that can take us past that, that we can tap into the blood of Jesus and forgive people of things that can't be forgiven. Because Jesus has washed our sin and Jesus has washed their sin and Jesus gives us the strength when we don't have it to do what is literally not naturally possible but only supernaturally possible. And I find that to be absolutely amazing. And I believe it to be true and not just a fairy tale that makes me feel better. I think Jesus actually died and he actually shed his blood and he actually forgave you and me and he's actually able to reach into our hearts and give us the strength to forgive that we don't have on our own. Um, Paul continues on in chapter two. He says this. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says you were stuck, you were trapped, you were condemned, you were wallowing in the mud and enjoying it, and you had no hope to climb out of the pit. You, like Freud says, were like the core of you was just your disorder desires, and you had no hope, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you had no hope. You were trapped. There was no way to climb out. You were condemned and stained and dirty, but God, he forgave you and gave you hope to climb out. He gave you hope for today, hope for tomorrow, and hope for eternity, and he has seated you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God's plan for us to climb out is the forgiveness of sins. God plan, God's plan for society to heal and get better and get not to us to utopia, not just to paradise, but to get to the kingdom of heaven, it begins with the forgiveness of sin. That's for eternity, but it's also here, it's among us, it's at hand. There was a man named uh, John Newton. Uh, you may have heard his story before. John Newton was a slave ship captain, as was his father before him. Uh, John Newton, uh, he, he made a living sailing up and down the coast of Africa, finding men, women, and children, purchasing them, trafficking them across the Atlantic Ocean, and selling them, selling human bodies and human souls. John Newton was a wicked man, and he knew it. And one day, he was off the coast of Africa, and his ship got caught in a horrible storm that threatened to, to, tear, to tear the ship apart and claim their lives with it. And in the middle of the storm, John Newton cried out. He said, Lord, have mercy on me. Eleven hours later, the storm subsided and they escaped with the ship intact and their lives in hand. And so John sailed back to England and he quit his life as a slave ship captain and he gave his life to Jesus. Some years later, um, some years later, John uh, met a young man named William Wilberforce who he discipled, and and Wilberforce entered into Parliament, and John encouraged him to continue in Parliament and to stay when he was thinking about leaving. Uh, And and then because of the discipleship of John Newton and because of something God told Wilberforce one day in a quiet time, uh, William Wilberforce devoted his life to seeing if he could bring about the legal abolition of slavery in the world. 
And when he started, there was nobody but him and John that was interested in this. And over the course of his life, Wilberforce actually successfully brought about the legal abolition of slavery over the vast majority of the planet in almost every empire of the world. Something that had grown into a great wicked industry that had rooted itself deeply in the history of mankind was ended in the course of a single lifetime. And God's plan to do this, God's plan to restore, God's plan to heal, God's plan to change society, to move it more towards what it ought to be, began with the forgiveness of one man. John Newton, by the way, uh, is the man who penned some of the words that we sang earlier today, words that we're all familiar with. He wrote the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. God's plan for John to climb out of the hole that he had no hope to climb out of began with God forgiving John's sin. And then God used that to heal one of the most wicked things that society has ever sunk its teeth into that was, that was rooted all the way down in the bedrock and the foundations of humanity and how we were interacting with each other in society. God healed that with the forgiveness of one man. And my guess is that there are some people in here who would feel like John did, like, I'm a wretch. I, I know I'm filthy, but I'm stuck in the mud and I'm already stained and I might as well continue to roll around in the mud and maybe even make a buck at it while I'm at it. God's plan for you begins with his forgiveness of your sins right now. That's his plan for you for today. It's his plan for you for tomorrow. It's his plan for all of eternity for you. And who knows what beautiful things God might heal in the world around you, beginning with the forgiveness of your sins. When we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we mean we believe that God forgives our sins. The other thing that we mean when we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins is that we believe that God has called us to forgive the sins of others. The Bible actually has some really scary words to say about how vital it is that we forgive other people. It's very serious about the call for you and for me to forgive everyone. No matter how much we like that or don't like that, no matter how impossible that might seem, yet the Bible calls us to forgive others. Um, I think most of us, maybe all of us, have a profound admiration for those sweet little 80-year-old couples who are still very much in love, don't we? Right? You don't see them too often, but you do see them. They exist. Right? They're, they're 80 years old, and they're more in love in their 80s than they were on their wedding day in their 20s. Right? And they're the little old couples that spend their time knitting, and they spend their time in the rocking chair on the back deck, and holding hands, and gardening, and just like, then you can just tell, like, man, these, these people love each other so much. And if you have enough conversations with those older couples and you listen close enough to their story and enough of their story, you will eventually realize that there is not a single one of those 80-year-old couples who love each other more in their 80s than they did in their 20s. There's not a single one of those couples who didn't get there having had to over and over again forgive each other of the types of sins that could have ended their marriage. In fact, there's not a single one of them who got there without having forgiven each other of the types of sins that have ended other marriages. When uh, Colleen and I were younger, before we were married, before we were dating, or sorry, before we were married, before we were engaged, and, and when we were dating, um, we had been dating for quite a while. There's one particular day, I remember, we were in the middle of a season of our relationship that I think volatile is honestly probably the best uh, word for it. Like, we were fighting a lot. We were fighting about big things and stupid things and significant things and insignificant things. And, and one particular day, we had spent most of the day in Tempe hanging out, doing a bunch of different stuff. And it was towards the end of the day, and we were in the car, and we were driving to a restaurant where we were going to get dinner. Um, 
And one thing led to another. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if it started as a big fight or, or what, but I know that this fight ended as a very big fight. Um, and so the, the, the volume level kind of starts to rise, right? The tension rises. Our tones aren't so lovey-dovey anymore. And, you know, one or both of us are saying, I'm not yelling, you're yelling, you know, because somehow that makes perfect sense to yell that at the person you're yelling at. Um, I, 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 I mean, that, this is the only time I've ever done that. And I know none of you guys ever talk to your spouses that way. Um, but uh, so we're yelling at each other. And things are getting really tense. And I don't remember what she said or what she did, but she said something uh, that really frustrated me or made me anger and angry. And I thought, um, not really with the most rational part of my brain, but definitely with the hot-headed part of my brain, I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something to her that's going to show her what it's like to be hurt by my words. And I wish I could say I was just being stupid, but the truth is I had some malice in there too. There was a lot of stupid, um, but there was some malice as well there. And so I, I, I said something to her that was particularly ungracious about her past, thinking, I'm going to just, I'm going to poke her. I'm going to just, she's going to know what it feels like a little bit. And the moment I finished saying, actually probably a little bit before I finished saying what I was saying, I realized these words aren't going to poke her. They're going to stab right through her. And as soon as they left my lips, she just collapsed into a huddle, into a ball of just nothing. Right? She, she sunk down, she put, her hands in her, she put her hands over her face and she began to weep. And I realized that I had just done something that I could not undo. And I realized that probably this is gonna end with the end of our relationship, that she's probably gonna pick her head up from her hands and she's gonna look at me and she's gonna say, take me home, I don't wanna see you again, we're done. Or otherwise, she's gonna cry for a while, it's gonna be awkward, we're gonna go to dinner, it's gonna be a very awkward meal. We're going to kind of sweep this under the rug, but, but the words that I said, they're going to be in her heart and they're going to grow into bitterness and resentment. And then I'm going to get bitter and I'm going to start to resent her. And eventually we're going to have to leave each other because of these words that I just spoke. And she cried for what seemed like hours, but was probably only a minute or two. And then at some point she kind of straightened up a little bit. She put her hands down and she looked at me with her tear-stained face. And when I thought she was going to say, take me home, I don't want to see you again, we're done. When I thought she was going to say that, instead, the words that came out of her mouth were these. She said, I forgive you. And right then, that was the moment when the wedge that I had driven between us, when the thing that the enemy meant to break us apart forever, it was transformed into something that actually tied us a little bit tighter together. Why? Because Colleen believes in the forgiveness of sins. And why does she believe in the forgiveness of sins? Because she's experienced God's forgiveness of her sins. In that moment, I guarantee you, it was not the strength of her heart that forgave me of those nasty words I spoke. It was her tapping into the strength of the blood of Jesus. Blood of Jesus over her life, the blood of Jesus over my life. And if you're going to want strong and robust and lasting relationships in your life, you are going to need to learn and to tap into the strength of Jesus to forgive the people around you. Mark Buckley puts it this way. He says, grace is the stuff that makes life work. And this is true in your relationship with your spouse. It's true with your kids. It's true in your relationship with your parents and your siblings and your whole family. It's true with your friends and your coworkers and your bosses. It's true with the other students at the school you go to or the professors or the faculty or the staff. This is true even with strangers. 
You and I, if we wanna have thriving, healthy relationships, we're gonna need to learn the power of forgiveness. Now, forgiving someone doesn't guarantee a healthy relationship with them. And on Wednesday, you know, we'll talk more about the how to forgive and maybe some of the theology and some of those little kind of footnotes that are really important to give uh, when we talk about forgiveness. Because it's not that simple, but it is very possible. Um, this has been kind of a different message on forgiveness. Usually, you know, we do talk about the how-to and, and all that. Um, today, we're really just saying we believe in forgiveness. We know that some people don't believe in forgiveness. But we, we stand over here. And we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that God has forgiven us, that Jesus died for us, that he's washed us. And we believe that we are able to forgive people that we're not able to forgive. And I think it would be a mistake to end today without a call forward. Maybe you're like John Newton. Maybe you're nasty and you're filthy and you're a wretch and you know it. And you've just been hanging out in the mud because you don't know what else to do because you haven't been able to get out of it on your own. And you know you're stained, so you might as well wallow in the mud while you're at it. If that's you, I would encourage you to come forward today. As we continue on in worship, I would encourage you to come forward to get on your knees before the Lord and to cry out to God like John Newton did and to say, Lord, have mercy on me. Because I believe that Jesus has forgiveness for you. I believe that Jesus died for you. And I believe you can climb out of that hole because his strength will give you that capacity. And I believe he can transform you. And who knows what beautiful things the Lord might do in the world around you, starting with his forgiveness of your sins. Or maybe you're the person who's just angry and you're bitter and you have not been able to forgive that person. Maybe you don't even want to. God is calling you to forgive them. That might be offensive, it might be infuriating, it might be scandalous. Others might call that a tool of oppressors. Nonetheless, this is the way of Jesus. And if that's you, I, I would encourage you to come forward to get before the Lord, to bow before the Lord, and to say, God, I don't know how to forgive this person. I don't even know if I want to forgive this person. Jesus, will you give me your supernatural strength to forgive them? Jesus, will you give me your blood Help me to see them washed by you as you have washed me. Help me to forgive what is not forgivable. Let me forgive by your strength and not my own. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that it's meaningful, that it's powerful, that it's true, that it is beautiful. And we know that there are those who don't, who don't agree with us, who don't think it's a good thing, but, but we here in this church, in this body, the followers of Jesus all around the world, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We've seen what it can do. And we've been amazed by it. So Lord, help us to believe that you've forgiven us. Transform us, make us clean, make us whole, make us new, and help us to forgive those who we see as unforgivable. Would you give us the strength of your blood and the power of your spirit to do what is beyond our own capacity? We love you so much, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us. Amen.